Hello, and welcome to For Your Listening Pleasure, a podcast focused on talking with interesting and diverse individuals and discussing how their backgrounds shape them into the people they are today. I am your host, Mallory Waxman. Today on the podcast, I'm excited to be welcoming Karen Casey. Karen is a best-selling author, and in 1982, Karen's first book, Each Day, A New Beginning, defined a genre as the first daily meditation book for women in recovery. Today, 40 years later, and with more than two dozen books to her credit, Karen continues to help thousands upon thousands of women, not only with her writing and workshops, but with her service and involvement in the 12-step community. Listeners, this is one of the most moving and vulnerable conversations I have had with a guest thus far about addiction, suicide, and reflecting on one's life. I hope you enjoy this conversation as much as I did. Karen, thank you so much for joining me today. For our listeners who maybe have never heard of you, uh, would you mind just giving a brief introduction and then we'll dive into your story? Okay. Uh, I'm so happy to be here, Mallory. And um, I am a recovering alcoholic. That's uh, a primary piece of information about my story. And I uh, got sober May 24th, 1976. So I've been on this recovery journey for a very long time. And it's really being on the recovery journey, which led me to the publication of my very first book, Each Day, A New Beginning, which is celebrating its 40th year this year, which kind of amazes me to think that 40 years have passed so quickly. And um, and it's like, how can I really be 40 years older? And, and then I look in the mirror and I realize that it's quite evident that I'm 40 years older. But I, um, you know, I ended up as, a, as an alcoholic, uh, I don't think accidentally, I don't think there are any accidents in our lives. I think that we end up where we need to be. And I um, took my first drink at age 13 as a result of just never feeling like I fit any place. And, and I received from that first drink, the kind of comfort that I wished I had within my family of origin, which I didn't have. And of course, that led me on my long journey that then culminated in coming into the rooms of Alcoholics Anonymous, May 24th, 1976, where I have been ever since. And when we spoke previously, you talked about growing up in Indiana and what that was like. Can you just go into the family dynamics? Because we'll dive back into that a little bit later on. But I think it's a good way to start. Okay. Okay. Well, you know, um, I'm sure that my family was a loving family. However, that doesn't mean we feel that love. And what I grew to understand as I got older was that my parents never ever felt the kind of security and contentment that would have allowed them to to provide the kind of security and contentment that uh, my siblings and I really needed. Now they were never um, brutal, they were never, but they were emotionally distant, which happens I think in so many families. And um, I grew to understand that both of them just simply felt inadequate in their own lives. And I think that their inadequacies 
prevented them from showing up in our lives, or at least in my life, the way I needed them to show up so that I would feel uh, the kind of comfort that I was seeking, which is why then, as I said, I turned to that first drink of alcohol at a family gathering. There was always alcohol at the big family gatherings. And there were a few alcoholics running around in the big family tree, uh, although my parents were not alcoholic. Um, but so it was always easy to, to actually uh, take a drink. And so for me, that very first drink of alcohol and Coke was like heavenly. It was like, oh my gosh, this is how I could feel all the time if I simply turned to alcohol. Well, I wasn't a daily drinker, um, but I did turn to alcohol frequently. And growing up in Indiana, um, you know, I had lots of friends, um, but I never felt like I actually fit uh, in the way it seemed others fit in the group. And I know that that was just my own inner feelings of inadequacy, which is why alcohol um, muffled those inadequate feelings for me. Um, I, my, I had two older sisters and a younger brother. My father and I seemed to lock horns a lot from the time I was young. It, it felt to me as the third child that it was my assignment to protect my mother and my brother from his um when I say brutality, I don't mean physical brutality, but he he was, you know, he just was always critical of other people. Well, I grew to understand much later in life that his criticisms of others um, were related to his own feelings of imperfection. What I found really interesting when we spoke was you talked about your first marriage to your first husband. And right. when I asked you, oh, it was a big proposal? Were you in love? And you just said, well, he asked. So I said, yes. After we got off the phone last time, I was thinking, wow, like just because he asked, you said yes. And then I thought, well, did it go back to like your upbringing? Why you just were like, yeah, I guess I'll marry you. That works. Can you talk about what that first marriage was like and how that, where that led you to? Oh, thank you for asking that, Mallory. Yeah, you know, I... um. I went to college. I mean, this was in 1957 when I graduated from high school. And at that period of time, I think that a whole lot of women went to college thinking that their primary goal in college was to get a husband. And that was what had been true for my sisters. And um, my, my oldest sister didn't finish college before she got her husband. <laughs> my second sister did finish college before she ever got married. Uh, and, and I went to college and, and I got, I finished my undergraduate, but um, I didn't really know that I was looking for a husband as much as I was looking for somebody to save me from the feelings that I had. And codependency is, is an absolutely hideous disease uh, as much as alcoholism is really, because as a codependent, I was always looking for somebody else to make me feel better. I was always looking to fit in to somebody's circle so that I would feel okay. 
And so, you know, I think that I was actually born codependent, which is why that first drink was so appealing to me. Well, at any rate, when I met Bill, my first husband, he was in my biology class and he was um, really cute and he was really, really smart. And, and all the all the young women in the class were as enamored of him as I was, I think, from the standpoint that he was cute and he was smart. So he always kind of had this uh, cadre of, of girls around him uh, looking for answers uh, to the questions we were dealing with. And he and I started to date. And, um, and, and like I say, it was, I didn't feel this, even this really great love attraction, but I felt comforted by the attention that I received. And, uh, and that is really what I was seeking was attention from somebody and, and attention that made me feel that I was special. And so the fact that he asked me to, to marry him, it was like, it never occurred to me to ask myself, is this somebody I really want to spend my life with? It was somebody that had asked me to marry him. And so, of course, I said yes. And so we ended up having a 12-year, very bumpy marriage. And it was a bumpy marriage for so many reasons. Um, first and, and foremost, because it was an alcoholic marriage. One of the things about him, along with his being cute and really smart, he liked to drink just like me and... He had a red Buick convertible. I mean, those things added up to, well, this guy is worth giving some time and attention to. And so, um, so at any rate, when we got married, um, he still had the red Buick convertible, but the drinking was very much out of control. I didn't realize my own alcoholism at that time because I was so much more focused on what alcohol was doing to his life and to our relationship. And so, you know, it's always uh, so much easier to focus on somebody else. Especially as someone who's codependent, as I've been in my own journey, I realize I also have some codependency issues and I am such a put other people first, people pleaser. You know, they always say you have to put the oxygen mask on yourself first. I make sure everyone else on the plane is breathing while I'm running out of air before I take care of myself. And so I think those two um, attributes coincide a lot. I think they do too, Mallory. And, um, you know, I was so intent on trying to make the relationship be what I wanted it to be, not because of this great love, but because of how I thought others were looking at us. You know, we would go to parties and stuff, and his behavior would be just abominable, uh, embarrassing in, in so many ways. And, and instead of just going, you know, uh, let him be judged for who he is, it felt like I was supposed to kind of smooth everything over all the time because of how people were going to look at me because of how he was behaving. And so, you know, that's what the 
the codependent does so often. And so much of my focus in that 12-year marriage was really on him and what he was doing. And to top things off, he became a serial, what do I want to say? We did not have a monogamous marriage. <laughs> you know, he had many, many affairs. Uh, he was, and I didn't know it until toward the end of our marriage. But from the very, but I came to learn that from the get-go, he was involved with other women. And what I believe was the case was that because of his own insecurities, he was really looking for acceptance from others in his own way to feel better about himself. And, and it didn't matter to him the impact it might be having on our relationship. There's that saying that hurt people hurt people. And so for him needing the attention from other people or validation, it ended up hurting you. And it's kind of interesting because you felt like that spotlight on you when he was like, oh, do you want to get married? And you felt that attention. And then when you learn that he's giving it to other people, I'm sure that had to be hard on your own self-esteem. Oh, it was. You know, what I also knew, I, I, I didn't realize at the time about the affairs. I did know he was working on his Ph.D. at that time. We had moved to the University of Minnesota so that he could get a Ph.D. in American studies, which he never did uh, fulfill the requirements because of his inability to write the papers. And the irony in that was that he was a true scholar. He was a brilliant man, but he always felt as though there was this body of information that he didn't have a grip on. And so it always stymied him when he would sit to write a paper. Well, you know, when I think back on all of that, his dad, uh, who wasn't really an educated man, but his dad always made Bill feel inadequate. And um, his dad was the kind of person who simply didn't speak. I mean, we would go to visit them and his dad would go sit in the living room by himself or watch TV and ignore Bill, his mother and I for the entire weekend. And so I think that Bill had grown up feeling like he did not measure up in such crucial ways with his dad. And so he goes to college. He ends up becoming, um, uh, I mean, he, he had never had a drink in his life until he went to Purdue at age 17, took that first drink and became a rip-roaring alcoholic. How he managed to get through school, I don't know, uh, but he did. He even got a master's degree at Purdue before we ended up moving up here to Minnesota where I am today, but he never felt adequate. And I think that that's what his affairs were about. And he never talked about feeling inadequate, of course, because in that period of time, a lot of people didn't even understand it. And they certainly didn't talk about it. A man didn't go around telling his wife or anybody else, gee, you know, I really feel inadequate. You know, they just turned to alcohol or something else to fill that emptiness. And for him, that's what it was, alcohol and other women. Um, 
And when the marriage ended, you were blamed for it, which is so interesting that like you were the one that friends and family were kind of putting more the blame on why the marriage didn't succeed when his alcoholism, his affairs just kind of were looked at as like, well, it is what it is. Men will be men. You were the one that was kind of nailed to the cross about not being able to maintain the marriage or keep it together. Obviously, that I can only imagine encouraged you to turn to alcohol even more. That's right. That's exactly what happened. You know, when I when he first left, I didn't even tell my family. I honest to God, when I think back on that, Mallory, that I didn't even tell my family that Bill had left because my expectation was that they would say, well, what did you do? What did you do wrong, Karen? And, um, you know, that's kind of, I don't know if that was the the kind of feeling that other women had in situations similar to mine, uh, but for sure I, I didn't feel the kind of support from them. From and And so you're right, I turned more to alcohol and to naturally to other men who were very poor choices. But at that point, it didn't matter to me if it was a poor choice. But but there was an upside to his leaving. And that's really what I focus on a lot. You know, I don't think I had been an elementary school teacher for eight years. I had been our financial support. Uh, and, and, and that was another bitter pill to swallow that I was supporting his his escapades, uh, unbeknown to me. Um, but when he left, I thought, you know, I need to do something different with my own life, perhaps. And that's when I started graduate school myself. And I ended up getting a doctorate here at University of Minnesota and finished that degree in 1979. And, um, and the irony was that he never finished, but I did. And, and I didn't go to graduate school thinking that I was this great scholar. I knew I wasn't a great scholar. But Mallory, what was going on in my life when I started graduate school was I, I was an absolute daily drinker. I was going with men who were very poor choices. And in the midst of all of that, and this is just astounds me to, even to this day, in the midst of all of that, I was a straight A student throughout my entire graduate program. It's like, how can that be? Because I well, think that when you find worth and you feel accomplished and you're getting the attention that you were seeking when you're younger, but like from school, from academics, you end up gravitating towards those things that bring you joy or make you feel fulfilled. And that's probably why you were able to maintain such great grades and continue on in your educational journey because, you know, everything else in life can be exploding. But if you're doing really well here, you're going to keep putting more time and energy in. But during this time, you also, I believe, were encouraged at some point to attend an Al-Anon meeting from a friend. Right. Okay, I'll, I'll let me let me give you that story. As I said, 
here I am meeting with success in graduate school, teaching at the University of Minnesota, um, and choosing, making such poor choices in men. And, and a couple of them ended up being sent to treatment. Well, one of them, when he was sent to treatment, his counselor said to me, you know, I think you need to go to Al-Anon. And the way he said it, Mallory, is so funny. He said, you know, you've got a lot of furrows in your, in your um, forehead. And it was like, what? He said, those furrows are, are from worry. You need to go to Al-Anon. And it was like, oh, really? Furrows, Al-Anon, okay. Well, you know, it's like I was so codependent that anything to save that relationship, I would give it a try. Um, not having any idea what I was about to discover in Al-Anon. I walked into that first meeting, and this is here in Minneapolis. It was a meeting at the Unitarian Society Church on Mount Curve. Uh, it was just a, a it was, it, it was an experience I will never ever forget. I walked in to this church basement, you know, meetings are so often in church basements. I walked in, there's a room of probably 30 people, of course, none of whom I've ever seen before, but I immediately felt a sense of well-being and comfort. I immediately felt this level of acceptance that I had never felt in my life previously. It was, it, it astounded me. It's like, what is the magic here? What's going on in this gathering? And, and I mean, I knew that they didn't know me. I didn't know them, but they welcomed me as though they did know me. And as I listened to them, listened to them share their stories from their hearts, I realized I knew them. I knew their hearts because I could tell that we had felt so many similar things. And when I sat there and um, I looked at the on the wall, you know, in the walls of the rooms of Al-Anon and AA, there are always the steps and the traditions and oftentimes the slogans. And I kind of looked at all of that and thought, oh, dear, 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 this really isn't for me. But the feeling is for me, the comfort I feel is for me. But I, I kind of thought, gee, if I'm going to have to turn my life and my will over to the care of God, I, I don't think I could do that. I, I was not a believer. And, um, uh, but I, all I knew was that I felt, it felt as though there were warm arms wrapped around me the whole time that I was at that meeting. And when I left, Two things happened. One, they said, come back. And I knew that I would be back. And number two, they gave me a little book called One Day at a Time in Al-Anon. And they said, we're sending this book home with you. Not to keep. However, I still have that book. <laughs> and, and inside that it's dated 1974. I still have that book. And, uh, I don't think I ever paid for it, <laughs> but they sent it home with me and they said, now this should help you on a daily basis. 
And I, I went home that night and I sat down. And doggone it, it never dawned on me that it said one day at a time in Al-Anon. I read it from cover to cover because they were just short little messages. And I thought, oh, I've got this. I've got this. I, you know, this, I got this figured out. I'll be just fine. But, you know, I, I went back that next week. And when I went back and they said, well, how are you? And and I said, I'm just fine. I finished the book. <laughs> and they all laughed and said, well, now you can start over. And just read one page a day, though, and let that page guide you. And, you know, I'll, I'll never forget the, the, the gentle laughter and the comfort of that group. Because I, I really think that that's what anybody going to a 12-step meeting is looking for, gentle comfort. And, you know, I think that's the beauty of 12-step meetings. Our primary purpose is to offer gentle comfort to people. Because no matter what the program is, whether it's AA, Al-Anon, NA, EA, any, any of the many programs that have uh, developed based on the 12 steps of Alcoholics Anonymous, they're all about offering gentle comfort. And, um, and you know, I, that, that, that meeting, that group that I continue to go to, I feel as though um, gave, gave real purpose to my life. And, you know, the thing that's really kind of funny about that, too, was even though I had never seen a meditation book in my life before, I've always, I've often thought about uh, God's little joke on me because in time I was to write many daily meditation books. And it was like, that was my first introduction to what a meditation book even was. And it was as though I was getting this nudge right then and there that uh, this is your direction, Karen, even though I had no idea that that indeed was my direction. And about a year of you attending your first Al-Anon meeting, you were sober, but in like a mentally dark place. And I feel like a lot of individuals, when they decide to get sober, you really have to change almost every aspect of your life depending on how severe your addiction is, but mostly it's like having to explain to friends, no, I don't want to go to a bar or no, I can you not drink? You know, there's a lot of different conversations and uh, severities in that spectrum, but you just weren't really doing well and decided that. And sadly, I think this is something a lot of people struggle with who had thought about possibly ending your life. But weirdly enough, the universe sent you someone that you were not expecting. And when you told me the story, I got goosebumps and I think listeners will too. Can you share that story? Because it's so powerful. I'd be happy. And I think that the, it really shows that the universe always has your back if you really lean into the possibility. Yeah, I'd be happy to Mallory because I sit here so many, 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 many years later realizing that in fact, I wouldn't be sitting here had she not appeared. You know, I had been sober about 18 months. I loved AA. I went to lots of meetings. While I was in a meeting and, and all of my friends 
had become AA friends. But And while I was in a meeting or with these friends, I felt a sense of relief and well-being. But then I would leave and be by myself. And all of that feeling would leave me. I never, I couldn't connect to that belief in a God, in a higher power, except when I was at a meeting or in the company of my friends. I, I didn't understand what was missing, but there was this big void in my life. And um, so after 18 months, and you know, I was still doing my regular life. I was, I was teaching at the university, I was taking classes, but man, I hit the wall. I hit the wall and for about a week and a half, I didn't leave my one bedroom apartment. I, I sat in there and, and it just seemed that the only sensible thing was to end it. And it, it didn't even scare me. I didn't think about reaching out. That entire week, I didn't call anybody and say, oh, you guys, I'm scared. You know, I don't know what's happening. I did nothing but sit there and think about this is, I don't want to do this anymore. And the thought of suicide, actually, Mallory, had crossed my mind as a kid uh, when I felt so disconnected as a kid from my family and other people. But I didn't know how to kind of think about it in my mind. I just would think as a kid about disappearing and what that would be like. Well, as an adult, as a woman, um, almost 38 years old, it was a, a far different realization that yes, I could end this. And so I took the towels in my apartment, rolled them all up, put them on my kitchen table. Uh, I was going to just turn on the gas. I was going to put all those towels around up. It was a one bedroom apartment, $100 a month, one bedroom apartment. You know, that was, this was in the old days. <laughs> and you couldn't get a, a corner in a closet for $100 a month these days. But, um, but you know, it was, it just seemed, I had no thought. I didn't think, oh, gee, this is going to hurt people. None of that went through my mind. It was just, it's time to go, Karen. It's time to go. And then there was a knock at the door. And it was like, my gosh, a very insistent sounding knock. And I walked over to the door and I said, who's there? And this female voice said, Pat. And it was like, Pat. I didn't know anybody named Pat. And she said, we have an appointment. And she was, it, it was kind of uh, pushy, kind of aggressive. And, and I'm not even sure why I opened the door, but I think it was because I was so easily intimidated in that vulnerable state. So I opened the door and there stood this absolutely beautiful red haired woman. She had her hair, uh, she had long hair, but it was wrapped up kind of in a, a, a roll up the back of her head, the way women wore their hair way back then. And, uh, and she had a, a beautiful smile. And I knew I had never seen her before. 
And she said, you and I have an appointment. I'm a financial planner. It's like, what? She opened up her daily planner. Doggone it, there was my name. And she said, um, you know, I, I intend to keep this appointment. <laughs> and I opened the door and she walked in. She walked right to my kitchen table and sat herself down. Did not say one word about the towels. Uh, didn't, it, but then, then she looked at me. You know, because I, I kind of meekly followed her into my kitchen. And she looked up at me and she said, are you okay? And I said, no, no, I'm really not. I said, I'm really, really depressed. I said, I'm a recovering alcoholic and I'm really depressed. And I really, I didn't say, I didn't say I'm about to commit suicide. And you just interrupted my, my plan. But I said, I, I just feel nothing, no connection. And she said, oh, she said, you know, let me tell you, I understand. I have been there. And so is my husband. And interestingly, she said, he's a recovering alcoholic too. So she said, you know, what you are experiencing has a name. It's called chemicalization. I said, what? She said, it's chemicalization. She said, a woman named Catherine Ponder has written about this in a book called, uh, oh, the name of the book has just escaped me, but it was about healing. And she said, chemicalization is when you are on the precipice of a new spiritual breakthrough. And she said, that's where you are. You're going to be just fine. You're on the precipice of a new spiritual breakthrough. All you have to do is reach your hand across this precipice, across this deep abyss. God is right there waiting to take your hand. The book's title is The Dynamic Laws of Healing. And after she told me that, uh, I got that book. And sure enough, everything she said was true. But she said, just reach across. God is there. He's waiting to take your hand. And you know, with that, she stood up. Not one word about my finances was ever uttered. She stood up and she headed toward the door. And it was like, I could feel this gloom and doom lifting in, in every word. Her voice was so gentle and so full of assurance. And I followed her. And she turned around and reached her arms out and hugged me and said, Karen, you are going to be just fine. God is right here with you now. And she walked out the door and I was never to see her again. And, you know, had she not come, you and I would not be having this conversation today. Had she not come. It's just so wild to me because one, you're teaching, like you don't have tons of money for a financial planner. You never signed up for one. Who makes house calls, maybe back in the day, but still to like a random apartment in a building and that she immediately noticed, asked if you were okay, which I think is a question we as a society need to start asking a lot more. So we start to make it more normalized for people to say, no, I'm not okay. But that she gave you this book, hugged you. And for someone who 
said they were missing that like feeling of community or spirituality after leaving meetings, like almost kind of lit your apartment up with that feeling to lift the depression. And then that was it. I just, when you told me that the first time, it just blew my mind. Cause I do think that was the universe trying to be like, I do, we need you. You're supposed to be here, like trust in us and we'll take care of you. Right. I so believe that, you know, I, up to that point, if you had said, do you believe in angels? I would probably have said, oh, that's kind of a far reach for me. And, um, but, you know, after Pat appeared, it's like, I know she was sent. And whether we call her an angel, I choose to call her an angel. You know, I choose to believe that, that there are these hovering angels that are guiding us when we least expect it to help us on our journey. And I think that she was sent to help me because I think that I had more work to do. I, and you know, I had, I, I've come to realize that all throughout my graduate program, you know, things that were hard for other people like writing papers, Every time, you know, every graduate student, there was always the joke, you know, I mean, you go to graduate school and what you do is you write papers, you write gobs and gobs and gobs of papers. And then at the end, you write a three or 400 page dissertation. And, um, and, and the, the big joke in graduate school always was, well, I guess it's time to clean my apartment because it's time to write a paper. Well, you know, what I had discovered all through graduate school was that writing a paper was like falling off a log. I would just sit down and start writing. It was as though these messages would just come. For me, it was never, never an issue. I loved the process of sitting and writing. And I think that so many things converged in my life, Mallory. I think that I was led into graduate school by what I believe is the God of my understanding because of the work that he had planned for me. I never was able to have kids. You know, I had two ectopic pregnancies. And in between those two, uh, I had four miscarriages because I was not meant to have children. I was meant to give birth to books. And I really believe that. And, and to some, that may sound totally like, oh, that's off the deep end. But not to me. I really think that that's the assignment. Like Pat had her assignment. I think that God has given me assignment in this life. Besides Pat, on that spiritual journey of yours, and I would say almost like a journey of awakening to really figure out like who you were, you were in grad school and was taking a class that led you to have some uncomfortable and honest conversations with your parents. You went back to Indiana oh, right. and and had some conversations with your mom and dad that I think probably filled some holes or answered it some did. questions. Can you talk to our listeners about what that conversation went through? Because I know I've been going through those uncomfortable conversations with my parents on my own growth and healing journey. And I would encourage listeners to as well, if there's stuff that 
this lingering from the past to have those conversations while you can. Right. While you can is key. Yeah. Well, you know, um, I took a, a class and it was not related to my graduate program. I took a class uh, in family of origin and, um, and other of my friends in recovery were taking this, this class. And it was taught by a guy who was also in recovery, but it was to encourage you to go back while you could and have conversations with your parents and whoever uh, your forebears were that were still living about what their lives had been like. And when I talked with my mother, when I called them and said, and, and, you know, by this time I was in recovery, I was, I was still, uh, I hadn't uh, completed my PhD yet because I was still writing my dissertation, but I had, um, I called, called them and said, I want to talk to you about your life. And I, I think that they probably thought, oh, no, where is this going to go? Because they had been through a lot with me over the years. And um, and I went back and I, I sat down with my mother first. And I said, mother, tell me about your life. Tell me everything that you remember. And she just started to cry. And I, I was not expecting that at all. I didn't know what to expect, but I wasn't expecting her to start to cry. But she immediately said, I never felt like I was a good mother. I never felt like I was a good wife. She didn't go back into her childhood at all. She just talked about how she was feeling then. Not a good mother, not a good wife. And then she said, I think it's my fault you're an alcoholic. And I said, no, mother, why would you think that? And she said, because when I was pregnant for you, I didn't want you. And she said, I think that that's what caused you to be an alcoholic. And honestly, she started, she was just sobbing. And by that point, I was crying too. And I just put my arms around her and held her. And I said, mother, 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 it's not your fault I'm an alcoholic. I promise you it's not your fault. And she said, yes, but I didn't want you. And she had had two very difficult pregnancies with my two older sisters. And the doctor had said, don't have any more children, Thelma. But my dad desperately wanted a son. So she was pregnant again. And she really didn't want to be. And she was so afraid that maybe I wouldn't be a boy. And of course, voila, <laughs> here I was a girl. And so she felt like, like all of that had caused me to be an alcoholic. What I realized and what I said to her, I said, oh, mother, I'm so glad to know because I always felt this sense of disconnect. But it wasn't ever your fault that I was an alcoholic. I turned to alcohol to ease my own discomfort. But it was never, never, never your fault. But, you know, that conversation brought us together like I think nothing else ever could have. We developed a bond that we had not had previously. And we developed a bond that lasted until she died at 90. So, you know, it was 
I felt so grateful that she and I had this incredible relationship, uh, a relationship quite unlike what my sisters ended up having with her. Well, and then the next day, uh, I sat down with my dad. And uh, I don't know if you can hear my dog crying on the other side of the door, wanting desperately to come in, but I'm just going to ignore her and hope her dad hears her. Uh, I have a yellow lab. Uh, Anyway, um, I sat down the next morning with my dad and we sat outside. It was summertime. We sat outside at the picnic table. And he said, I said, Daddy, tell me. I always called him Daddy. Didn't make any difference how old I was or he was. He was Daddy. I said, Daddy, tell me about your life. I was absolutely dumbfounded. He said, I've been afraid every day of my life. And I was like, what? Because he had always been kind of, um, I mean, I knew there was a soft side to him, but he seldom showed that. He wasn't an alcoholic, but he was a rageolic. It took so little to make him just be really angry. And, um, And so to hear him say, I was afraid every day of my life. And he had been a successful banker in Lafayette, Indiana, where I grew up. And he said, I went to work every day of my life, afraid that I would make a mistake, that I would approve a big loan to somebody, to some corporation that they would default on. And I said, you know, Daddy, if that had happened, it wouldn't have been your fault. It would have been their fault. And he said, no, by God, it would have been my fault. And I said, where did all this fear come from? And he told me about his childhood. And when he was six years old, he was mowing the lawn. His parents had said, you go out and mow the lawn. And his younger brother, who was four, got his fingers in the way. And he cut off the tips of the uh, two fingers of his younger brother. And his parents just, of course, went crazy. And he felt from that moment on that it was his job to be perfect, to never make a mistake again. And therefore, he wanted none of us to make mistakes. And that's what his rage was about. But when I realized that he had spent his entire life being afraid that he was going to be making mistakes, it was like, oh, my gosh. To live a life filled with fear totally changed how I looked at him. I was able to look at him with such compassion after having had so many years of just this constant beating our heads together. I looked at him so different. You think by having those two conversations with your parents, it might have brought them closer on a deeper level? Because once you kind of crack away at it, if he could talk to you about that, do you think maybe behind closed doors he shared that with your mom a little bit? You know, I I don't know. But, you know, I, I think that I don't know if they talked about it, but I think it maybe did soften their relationship. You know, I, I don't doubt ever that, that they loved each other, but I think that it was very hard for them that their lives, uh, it was hard for them to express that love to each other. 
uh, in the same way that, uh, you know, I know it was a loving family, but it wasn't a family that expressed love in the way, at least that I sought the love from them, you know? Um, and I think that that's why I was always trying to figure out, am I okay in this family? You know, am I loved in this family? Because it was just a family that honestly didn't know how to express that love because of how they felt about themselves. And, you know, that is, like you said, wounded people end up in their own way wounding others. And, and so I think that for the conversation, though, that I was able to have with each of them opened the door to relationships that I could have with them that were so different than what my siblings had with them. You know, it, it really, um, I mean, we ended up having beautiful relationships for the rest of their lives. And, and that's what made, I mean, it made me so happy to think that, that for me, recovery had allowed me to find out who they really were. And I also would say recovery led you to experiencing the love you were always searching for because you met your husband at a meeting, correct? That's right. Yeah. My, my current, and we've been together for like 45 years. It's like, and I would, I would not say that all 45 years, those early years were not like, oh, they were wonderful. They, they, we went through some tough times, like, I think a lot of alcoholics trying to figure each other out uh, go through, but, um, but, you know, we had the tools of the program to, to really stay committed. And actually at his suggestion, when we first moved in together, because we lived together for four years before we actually got married. And um, so, but we decided at his suggestion Let's give this six months. No, it started out being three months. Let's give this three months of living together. And no matter what happens, we are not going to run away. We are going to stay for that 90-day period and just work through whatever comes up. And at the end of 90 days, we'll reassess. I mean, where he came up with this idea, I do not know. But I I, I think that... It, yeah, it was a great suggestion. So at the end of nine, and we had had some, I tell you, we had had some tough times during those first 90 days. Let me tell you one of the stories, if we have time. Uh, he was taking an art class uh, at the Art Institute here in Minneapolis. He was a pilot by profession, but he was an artist by avocation. And uh, an artist working in, well, in, and a builder. He's built airplanes and cars and cabins. And I mean, he's, a, he's a, an incredibly gifted human being. But he was in an art class. And he had a, a, a big picnic table out on a, a big uh, screened-in porch on our house. And we had decided, like a couple of crazy alcoholics, okay, this half of the porch is yours. This half of the porch is mine. And uh, he had laid out on his, on this uh, uh, 
picnic table, a mosaic he was building for art class. And honestly, Mallory, when I think about it, I walked out there and I thought. It's on your side of the porch. I think he's creeping onto my side. I went up to that mosaic and I took my arm and I went and every piece flew to the floor. He came out and said, what have you done? And I said, well, you're on my half. He went running up the spiral staircase. He had built a spiral staircase up to the study where I wrote my dissertation. He ran up there. He opened up all my file cabinets, started pulling out all the files. (laughs) They were laying all over the floor. And I had a, I grabbed a camera and I took a picture and I said, I'm going to send this to your mother. And he laughed and said, ha, 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 there is no film in that camera. <laughs> that's, I love it. That's how crazy we were. But we were in that first 90-day period. Well, I think like by establishing it was, it was like, like boundaries and kind of saying like we're committed to these 90 days, it probably gave you some sense of security that it doesn't matter how bad it gets this person's going to show up at the end of the night and be here and not run away. So like whatever insecurities or it gave you that sense of like, we're in this. And I know we're going to get through this. We are. I think that that would provide. At the end of that 90 days, he said, let's sign up for another six months and Mm -hmm. see what happens. And, you know, 45 years later, you keep signing up. Yeah. 45 years later, we've signed up again and again and again. So obviously this yeah, year- Yeah, it's been quite a journey. Yeah. And obviously this year is a really big year with it being the 40th anniversary of each day, a new beginning, daily meditations yeah, for women. Yeah. What made you write that book? Well, that's such an interesting story, Mallory, because as I said, this was after my experience with Pat. I was still, you know, in and out. I I never had reached that same place of wanting to take my life. And by that, by this time too, I was already living with Joe. But I had so often felt such a disconnect from a higher power. You know, it was like, what has everybody got that I don't have? Why can't I connect? And, And I think that, the writing process that I had discovered in graduate school, that's the reason I think that all of that was really God-guided, even though I didn't know. Because I, I loved writing throughout graduate school. So I sat and started to write and just journal. I mean, I had tons of other journals, but I started to write in a different way. And it was as though God and I were having a conversation. It was as though God was just trying to kind of quiet me down. And every day I would sit in this beat up old brown recliner up in my study, a recliner that Joe's dad had given me. And uh, I would sit there longhand and write. And it would just feel as though it was God and me having our own private time together. I had no intention that this was going to be something ever read by other people. That wasn't what was happening. I was trying to soothe my soul. 
And what actually happened then was that I was got a job at Hazelden after I finished my PhD. And um, the guy that hired me there hired me only because I had a PhD, not because I knew diddly about anything Hazelden was all about. But he hired me in the publishing arena and said, here's what he actually said. Hell, you'll figure it out. You got a PhD. I mean, that was that that was, you know, their whole publishing program was zip at that point. And so I showed up. Let me tell you a funny story. I, I don't know that there's time for all of this. but I was there that first day I showed up at work. He wasn't even there. Nobody knew I was coming. I showed up at work and somebody led me. Well, this is probably going to be your office. I sat down. Uh, the production manager, I didn't even know what that meant. He came in and said, here's a set of galleys for you. I didn't even know what that meant. I looked up galley in the dictionary because I didn't even know what a, what a galley meant. So I didn't have any idea what I was supposed to do with this thing. He gave me. It was like, oh, my gosh. It was all such a crazy experience. But at any rate, in the midst of all of this, I was journaling to calm and and soothe my soul. And the man who was president of Hazelden, Harry Swift, for some reason kind of took a liking to me and said to me, how are you doing? And I said, well, I mean, he knew I was in recovery. I was already three years sober when I started working there. And he said, um, and I said, well, you know, I'm, I'm journaling a lot to kind of help me out. And he said, well, if you ever want to share what you're journaling about, I'd sure like to see some of it. And why he was, you know, why he was moved to say that, I don't know. Why I was moved to share with him, I don't know. I, I look at things like that with no understanding other than I can only say somehow there was this, the universe was at work here. I shared with him some things I was writing. And he said, Karen, I think this is a book that other people need to read. Keep writing. That's how this book came to be. And I mean, it was just, I never had any idea that anybody would ever hold this book. And to this day, my whole life amazes me, Mallory. You know, it's it's like, who knew? You know, who knew this little kid in Lafayette, Indiana, who felt so inadequate and, and I felt like I didn't fit. And and I married a guy because he asked me and blah, 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 blah. And here I am at 83, you know, and uh, and all these books have just kind of tumbled out of me. But I think like what the big gift is that you're giving to the, you know, the world or the communities that you're in is that there's tons of people who feel inadequate or that they don't fit in and they're uncomfortable to say it or show it or ask for help or they don't know who to go to. And your books provide solace. They provide uh, community and the opportunity for individuals to read them and know I'm not alone. 
So yeah. it's, it's a big gift that you've given to the world. And uh, I know last time we spoke, I'm like, please write a memoir. Cause I could talk to you for hours and you're such a phenomenal storyteller, but I think what you've experienced is so relatable on so many levels and not even on the level of like being an addict. I grew up with my mom in an AA and she's been sober for several years, but even just like the emotions and stuff that you're speaking about hits close to home for me. And that's only one part of your story. Yeah. So, I, I, you know, I, since we talked that before I, I, uh, I think I am going to do a, a memoir, uh, a, a series of vignettes of, you know, um, not gee, I was born, uh, July 18th, <laughs> 1939, not that kind of a, uh, autobiography, but a, a memoir of a, a collection of vignettes of things in my lifetime. Yeah. Because I, I, because I want to savor those things too. Absolutely. And, you know, when you talked about speaking with your parents, um, when this podcast started, I did a bunch of like test episodes to kind of get my groove. And one of them is I have with my father. I don't have one with my mom. I would like to record one. But there's part of me that's kicking myself that I didn't think about doing podcasting when I still had my grandparents yeah. and the older generations and what they experienced and went through, especially my mom's parents who are Holocaust survivors. Right. But um, I think it's so important to have these conversations with people while you can. So I encourage listeners to like reach out to your family or to those individuals in your life to just ask, like, what was life like for you growing up? Oh. I agree. So Karen, thank you again so much for your time. I end every episode with the same three questions. Uh, the first question is, if you had a quote or a mantra that you live by, what would it be? I am here only to be truly helpful. Very fitting. I love that. The second question is, if you could relive any one day, which day would you choose? Actually, it was, it's the day that we just talked about with my mom and my dad. Because I would like to savor that even more specifically and say, and, and you know, that was such a, a, a special time that I had with each of them, a time that none of my siblings ever had with each of them. And, and it was so intensely personal and intimate. And that those two conversations I would like to have again with those loving, loving people. I understand that. And then lastly, the third question is, if you had a theme song that played every single time you walked into a room, which song would you choose? You know, and this will seem kind of strange, but, you know, I, I love, I love the song, It's a Wonderful World by Louis Armstrong. And, and, you know, there's a lot of things going on in this world that don't feel wonderful. But I think that the reason I like that song is that it's up to us to seek out the wonder in each moment that we're alive. And so I, that's why I love that song. It's a wonderful world. It's a world full of wonder. And, uh, and, so and, you know, we spread that wonder around by how we greet it. 
I'm going to add that song to the For Your Listening Pleasure theme song playlist on Spotify so listeners can hear your song as well as all the other guest songs. Um, Karen, again, thank you so much for your time and being so open and vulnerable and sharing your story. And well, I look forward to keeping in touch with you, but I'm excited to see when that book finally comes out. I'll be one of the first ones to buy it for sure. Okay. Thank you, Mallory. I love this experience with you.